I just started to make accounts on darknet marketplaces, browse around, and that really helped me kind of wrap my head around what it is. What it is is basically just an Amazon shop where you can buy any illegal item your heart desires using cryptocurrency. Hey everyone, welcome to The Laundry, where we discuss AML, technology, and the fight against financial crime. My name is Marit. With me, I have Frederick and Magnus. This is The Laundry, a podcast by Strice. Hey to all our Laundry listeners and welcome back for yet another exciting episode. And today we have Kim Grauer from Chainalysis in the studio with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Really pleased that you were able to join the podcast. Why don't we start off? Um, why don't you talk a little bit about your background? Sure. I uh, am the director of research at Chainalysis and have been at the company for four and a half years since the early days of the company's um, meteoric growth. And I lead research. So any public facing research or things that are utilizing our data set in order to kind of ask more macroeconomic questions. I'm kind of at the, I'm, I'm deep in the weeds on, on those types of issues. And it's more or less taken that form throughout my entire tenure at Chainalysis. Although it's been different teams, different, na- you know, the names of the teams have I've probably been on 10 different team names. And before that, I worked for the city of New York doing research on their economics arm and, you might it might not seem like there's a logical jump to cryptocurrency but they were they were thinking about creating you know blockchain hubs back then and i had so i was there for a few years and before that i got a masters in economics and that's where i got really interested in cryptocurrency because i wrote a game theory paper on what would it take for cryptocurrency to become mass adopted and I wrote it as kind of a joke because I didn't like the class. And I was like, mm, I'm going <laughs> to cryptocurrency is not fun. So I'm going to show this professor. But then I kind of got really into it. <laughs> didn't do well on the paper because I got too in the weeds on mining. But but it was still kind of from there. Every every birthday, I was like, I want cryptocurrency for as a present. I will only take that. And so it was it, I was I was hooked. And that was, I don't know, maybe um, 20, 2013 or something. And and so, yeah, that's my journey. <laughs> and you've got to tell us also about Chainalysis. What is Chainalysis? So even more important than my background is Chainalysis's background, which is a company started 2014 by an uh, amazing team of leaders. We've got uh, right now Jonathan Levin and Michael Groniger, who uh, who have pretty much been deep in the crypto space all along and started a company because they realized that it was hard for cryptocurrency, it was hard for cryptocurrency businesses to get a bank account because they're there are certain compliance obligations that any financial institution has to maintain and cryptocurrency was so new there was no way to test where your transactions were coming from there was kind of this feeling that cryptocurrency was was the shady underworld back then and so there was an obvious need for a product solution and so what we do all we do the nature of our business is identifying the cryptocurrency wallets of services so on a blockchain you might see 
a block if you have if you've looked on a block explorer it's it's all the transactions are publicly available on a block explorer but they don't make any sense they're a string of alphanumeric you know letters and numbers sending a certain amount of cryptocurrency to another string of alphanumeric letters and numbers and we are able to kind of translate that that raw blockchain data into something that makes more sense so it might say oh uh someone or coinbase is sending money to gemini and this is our entire data set it's it's based on these what we call attributions and then we're able to reform that um re i guess repackage that data into different forms depending on what where where you are so if you're a government customer or if you're law enforcement you might want to use it to do investigations to track down uh someone who you could subpoena in order to find the identity of a criminal you might if you're a financial institution you might use our KYT product which allows you to determine the source of all transactions that you're receiving to prevent things from sanctioned funds or terrorist funds from being off-ramped at your exchange or if you are just interested in research you might be interested in kind of the macro data that we're seeing total volumes in and out of exchanges total volumes between exchanges and stuff along those lines hi I'm William and I work as a software developer at Strice. We observe that existing KYC software is often incomplete, hard to navigate, and is not built for team collaboration. As a developer at Strice, my primary mission is to change this. The tech team at Strice purely focuses on making software that is easy to use and where teams across your organization can easily collaborate to keep your customer's journey moving forward fast. Want to trial how easy it is to use the Strice platform? Sign up for five days trial today. So let's jump into cryptocurrencies versus fiat as a means to launder money. Like uh, we are on the laundry podcast, so we are uh, obviously uh, into that. So what are the most common ways of laundering money using crypto? If we just start there. I think the first point to make is that every type of crime that we track launders money differently. And even, even more granular than that, every group launders money differently. So there are generalizations that you could make and you can see with our data. So what are those generalizations? Let's look, what we do every year with our crime report is we put together all of the wallets that are illicit, tagged as illicit, darknet markets, fraud shops, ransomware, um, stolen funds, all these wallets that criminals control. And then we say, we have this amazing algorithm, it's called indirect exposure, that traces through all the paths that those funds take to off-ramps. I don't know, kind of like a Google map looking at all the different paths that you could take in a car to a destination. It's probably a bad analogy, but yeah, it, it resonated with me when someone said that once. And we And we say, where did all these funds wind up? And what we see is that uh, by and large, they tend to wind up at exchanges. In the past, it's been low KYC exchanges. Now it's uh, it's still a few exchanges. It's also mixers are an increasingly popular destination for for illicit funds. DeFi is DeFi protocols are also increasingly utilized. This was one major finding in our report. Criminals are turning to DeFi platforms to as one stage in the money laundering process. The reason for that is likely that we saw a lot of people were stealing random, random, random tokens this year. 
and uh, hacking was a, so. What do you do? You have you have these thousand stolen shit tokens. Oh, sorry. Um, bad that's tokens. completely fine. Yeah, that's no oh. problem. No problem in Norway, actually. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Thank you. <laughs> you never know. You yeah. never know. But um, you, and then you. What do you do with them? You have to use. You have to use other DeFi protocols to convert them into maybe an, a wrapped ETH or a bit wrapped Bitcoin or something because a lot of people don't accept like the most random tokens. Oh yeah, here we have, we'll take the, this token that was listed yesterday. So DeFi <laughs> is another big, uh, another big part of, of that as well. So one famous case is the Russian cryptocurrency um, OTC Suex receiving and laundering over $160 million from ransomware attackers, scammers and darknet markets. So what happened here? This one's really interesting, uh, be, if only because it's actually a part of a greater issue, which is that there are actually we were able to pinpoint not only that this was Russia, but this is within Moscow City. With actually, we are we know exactly where the Suex is. It's in a place called Federation Tower East, which is actually a very beautiful, tall, big tower that um, does sell penthouse real estate. Uh, and I was, I did look online and was like, hmm, that's pretty nice. But, um, <laughs> but there's, we actually identified dozens and dozens of businesses registered in this building and in Moscow City in general that have the same profile as Suex and are moving lots of fraud, darknet market, ransomware money. Suex was, was notable for the amount of ransomware money that went through it. And, so all these businesses are headquartered in Federation Tower East in Moscow City, moving moving large quantities of money, and we're seeing it happening. And so we're able to pass this information on to uh, organizations such as OFAC, and they're able to use blockchain analysis to see this happening. And then they slap a sanction on these addresses, and then all of the activity is actually is effectively shut off. There's a greater question of where does that activity go? Does it um, does it cease, or does it kind of is it a whack-a-mole problem? We've been trying to use data to answer this for a long time. I think it's quite a. Con I think there's not one answer. I think that uh, what we've seen is sometimes it does seem to shut activity off, but sometimes you are able to see oh, a counterparty of Suex is now sending money to a new deposit address and we can we can see this happening and, and analyze it a limitation is we don't get to ask the intention behind the transfers so we don't get to say why did you start transferring your money from suex to this other thing was it because you're of the sanctions we don't get to ask that we can make assumptions about activity and that has actually been really important in our research on sanction evasion since the russia invasion but um, but yeah, so Suex is uh, is and then shortly after Suex, there was Chadex that was also sanctioned as as well for for similar similar reasons, all in Moscow City, um, moving all this illicit money. Yeah, and just for our listeners who might not know, could you explain what darknet markets is? A darknet market is like an Amazon shop <laughs> on the <laughs> on the tour uh, that operates on privacy browsers like Tor, where you can log in and buy any illegal item your heart desires. And I, I don't recommend this necessarily, but 
Oh, there was a part of my career where I had to do, uh, I had to interact with some darknet marketplaces. I had to like learn about them just to, just because we're publishing on darknet marketplaces. And so I just started to make accounts on darknet marketplaces, browse around, and that really helped me kind of wrap my head around what it is. And what it is is basically just an Amazon shop on the, operating on Tor that, that sells illegal items that you pay for using cryptocurrency. There are many out there, and there are some that specialize in just marijuana. There are some that specialize in just uh, stolen credit cards. There are some that do anything that your heart desires, from fentanyl to a grenade launcher. And these all uh, are, are have different names, different marketing strategies, and we track their wallets, their wallet infrastructure, and are therefore well positioned to say how much how active they are and and how much how many customers they have how much money they're receiving over time another interesting example is the ronin case where 600 million was successfully stolen but the criminals ended up sending the funds to legit um, crypto exchanges to try to launder it so what happened here and what are your thoughts on this case and also just maybe give some background to our listeners who might not know of this Ronin was a bridge, uh, a DeFi bridge that was that was hacked very uh, just to, I think a few days ago, and fortunately we are the investigators, but unfortunately that means that I can't really comment on the details of the case publicly. They are doing a really good job though of of describing what exactly is happening and keeping people appraised of what of what happened overall. But essentially, this is a a bridge which is uh, it's kind of. It functionally creates interoperability between blockchains and we which allows you to move we have many blockchains now in this space which is a headache for me because <laughs> because it's <laughs> the second you have a new blockchain you need to ingest all the data on the new blockchain but also interpret it properly and so this allows you to move cryptocurrency across across blockchains and this has uh, this is like many things in defi is a target for hacks uh, through a through a variety of different mechanisms but essentially what people are doing is targeting defi more broadly and bridges are kind of one one subset within the greater attack on DeFi from hackers. And there have been several other bridge attacks. Wormhole was another was another extremely large one, but there's more beyond that as well in there. And it presents, I think the interesting thing about the bridge attacks is that there's a systemic threat with these bridge attacks, which is that if you're creating a link between two blockchains and one blockchain has a vulnerability, then you can impact the other blockchains. And if there's multiple blockchains connected to each other, there could be this cascading impact of the of the blockchain that had the risk and maybe maybe they were holding tokens from another blockchain and then and then there was a glitch and all those funds are gone, then the funds on the other blockchain are gone as well. And so this is a discussion that people have been talking about for a long time. I think Vitalik really highlighted, the, really broke this out really well, even before Wormhole, and talked about the pros and cons of, of this situation. Uh, and uh, that was a problem that was, you could, we, we, we narrowly missed an, a, a major issue like that with Wormhole. But with Ronin, unfortunately, I can't get into into more details of you know who who's controlling the funds and and where where they're going. Even though it sounds like you all already know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the interesting part about Ronin. I understand that you can't uh, comment to this, but it's uh, 
It's interesting to think that in modern day and age, you're able to hack and get away basically stealing $600 million. But you don't have yeah. the sophistication to use the means because you're actually sending them directly to a, a common used crypto exchange. Now, painting the picture, it, it's almost like you, you walk into a bank and you tell them open the bank vault and you take $600 million worth of gold bars and cash. And then you just head into another bank telling them, I want to deposit these funds. Will you agree on sort of the, the, the painting of that? Yes and no. I think conceptually, yes, it's the same thing. I don't think that there's much of a conceptual difference between a an in-person heist and a digital heist. But in terms of tracking the funds, I think it's much harder to move cryptocurrency than it is to move stolen cash or gold bars because look at what we're doing. I everyone who everyone at my company has alerts on uh, these stolen funds so that whenever they move they get a notification. We watch exactly what these people are doing. We're watching them take their money, you know, the equivalent of walking to a place next door and we're seeing them what they're trying to do and then we're able to tell law enforcement this is where you go to to find the person. So Cryptocurrency is way more transparent than people, I think, realize and appreciate. Uh, I think because of the of the early days of you know, there's this anonymous cryptocurrency. I think that's really lingered. When in reality, it's much. It's anonymous. It's it's not pseudonymous. So we mm. know that we know that um, it's sorry. It's not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. And and so there's it's it's hard to get away with, with the money that's why we see all these um white hat agreements after after hacks happen where someone you know agrees to give back the hat give back the money or we'll see them um or we'll see them sit on the funds for long periods of time or you know flood a mixer but i mean of course sometimes people do uh, get away with it but then years later like what we saw with bitfinex then then all of a sudden law, law enforcement has had enough time to compile a case follow the money then five years, four years later, I don't know if you guys remember the Bitfinex, the the Rosalcon um, event that that just happened. Essentially, there was a hack in 2016 from Bitfinex, and just a few weeks ago, law enforcement made the arrests and seized the money. So, so even if right now the hacker gets away with it, who knows what's going to happen in a few years? Interesting, and that's one of the beauties about cryptocurrencies that you actually have an end-to-end trail usually. Uh, with destinations of every single transaction because it's on the blockchain. Now, you spoke about mixers or, or tumblers, as uh, some people call it. What is a mixer? And could you sort of give a visual example of, of how a mixer would work? There's a lot of mixers out there. And they uh, uh, what a mixer does is it is the criminal, is kind of the industry solution to what we do, which is we trace funds. But ones if you don't want to be... Some have someone trace you. Ones if you maybe for ideological re- reasons, maybe just your computer nerd. Maybe you're sorry. I don't know a computer nerd. I, I imagine it would be a computer ner- nerd who just out of interest is like, I'm going to go through a mixer. But um, <laughs> and or maybe you're a criminal with funds who you want to. You know, there's there's a variety of reasons why you might use a mixer. Uh, but the one that we focus on the most is the is when a criminal has money that they need to they 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 want to convert into cash somehow but they're worried about blockchain analysis companies like us so they need to 
do something, what do they do? They use a mixer. And a mixer will essentially, using uh, using algorithms and more kind of advanced processes that are applied to the blockchain, can break your connection with the funds. So you send money to a mixer, and then the mixer essentially cycles the funds around between addresses in a statistical way that will prevent you from being able to associate the inputs to the mixer with the outputs to the mixer. So you send money from ransomware into a mixer, you see you receive money, hey, maybe from an exchange. And so it, it so it breaks that connection. Now we cluster, we 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 identify mixers in our product. So what you would actually see if you used our software is so this person is moving money from a mixer. And then they're able to send that money to an exchange and break that in initial connection with with the inputs to that mixer. Would a simplified explanation of this being almost as a person uh, having gained some illicit money uh, from uh, criminal activities walk into a casino and then they place the money into the casino and they end up gambling all night and then maybe they win some, maybe they lose some, but let's just for simplicity's sake say that they win exact uh, the amount they put in so they walk away with some money from the casino and there's no way of knowing if that's the same sort of dollar bills that they put into the casino when they actually started playing started gambling yeah i think that's just, that's exactly what's happening brilliant uh, and just to speak to wh- what type of problems does this lead to like using mixers are there any big problems we see occurring now because this is gaining so much traction? Um, I think the problems are that it is a pro it is makes it harder for them to for the criminals to be traced using blockchain analysis. And so it adds another layer of complexity to an investigation. And we have demixing products at Chainalysis that apply to some mixers, but um, it definitely if it definitely is a new dimension that law enforcement has to deal with if they're running a blockchain if they're running a blockchain investigation and one thing that i've heard happening is that maybe exchanges are going to have maybe exchanges might lower their tolerance of receiving funds from mixers period the end so basically a high, uh, exchange might treat mixed funds like illicit funds and not accept them that's yet to unfold. I've heard it happening in some instances. I think that what's more accurate is a compliance officer has a risk tolerance, and if they're only receiving money and structured payments from mixers, they might off they might off ramp or freeze that account. But if it's occasionally mixing, occasionally all these other things, then then maybe they're they're less likely to to do anything uh, to do anything around that. But mixers come up all the time. Mixers are used by bad, bad actors too. North Korea hackers are prolific use of mixers. And and we we see them steal funds. We see them flush a mixer basically within hours. They don't care about if we can trace through the mixer or if we can find out who they are. They, are just, they just want the money. Mm. They just want the money. They just want to get away with the money. A lot of people don't care if we can find who, who they are in some of these, especially if there's a jurisdiction that we say we can see all this stuff happening in Russia, for example, but are they gonna? What do we do? We just point at them. They have to be arrested. So there has to be some kind of nationwide approach to cracking down on crime. But with North Korea in particular, 
they don't they don't care at all if we can trace through uh, trace what they're doing because they just want to get as much money as possible and continue to hack and continue to get that money as quickly as possible from a victim to uh, to maybe cryptocurrency. Mm. We actually have found that North Korea is sitting on a, quite a lot of cryptocurrency right now. I think 160 million dollars worth of cryptocurrency as kind of a long-term investment, which is which is interesting. Do you think that people uh, that have used mixers will regret it in the future? Like let's say regulate regulators uh, put a strict no on any wall wallets ever involved with mixers or these type of scenarios? I mean, I don't know. I think that there's there certainly are some cases where a, a law enforcement officer has been able to crack a case later on because of technological advancements that have that have occurred that they weren't they didn't have access to during the crime that popped up years later. I mean, we've seen that happening where uh, where the technological developments will people can law enforcement can kind of retroactively go and investigate a case so that certainly happened and could happen with mixers and with other uh, the the point is i think the the interesting point that you're getting at is that is that all of the crimes that you carry out are forever footprinted on the blockchain forever and ever and ever so if you transact with a darknet marketplace using cash And there's no like CCTV, for example. That's done. That's done with. Maybe it's there's no going to be no record of that happening. But that transaction will always be recorded mm. on on the blockchain forever. So uh, there's not so long as block the blockchain kind of exists. There there will always in a, in 200 years be that record of that one transaction that happened. That would be terrible. Like imagine having a wallet and just one percent of your funds. Uh, has been involved with some sort of mixing, and it doesn't have to mean that you've done anything criminal. Maybe, as you mentioned, you from an ideological standpoint, or you just wanted to test it out, or similar. Uh, you you for some reason went through a mixer with parts of this fund, say one percent, and then one day regulators say, "No, we do not want any sort of involvement on any sort of wallet that's ever been involved with a mixer." And basically, basically have all funds frozen on that exchange at least. Do you think that's a hypothetical scenario scenario that could happen? I'm definitely not the person to ask for that, but I don't think that's how things work. I don't think you would retroactively look for a mixer kind of exposure and then retroactively freeze that account. I think it might be kind of a, a more of a forward thinking policy. And also, if you do for legitimate reasons use mixers, I don't think you really have anything to to worry about other than just maybe being like, I, I don't see an exchange just freezing funds because of an ex they, because of exposure to, to mixers. There also needs to be kind of a greater law enforcement investigation that, um, that is maybe why they're freezing funds or why that, you know, oftentimes they'll freeze funds just to ask for more information, or if you're not responding for more information. So I don't see it as kind of this this big brother state where they can uh, just make an arbitrary decision about what their risk tolerance is and freeze all accounts retroactively that that don't comply with that. That would be to me a kind of like a scam. And but we do have a lot of exchanges that are scam that are scams. And this would be the the rug pull where someone just decides that one day that I'm going to there's all this this money in custody I'm going to run away with the with going to run away with the money and kind of pull the rug on on all their investors. So yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but it's it's certainly interesting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, final question on this theme is with more and more um, stores accepting crypto as a payment, uh, do we do you think it's going to become an increasingly big problem that actually criminal gain funds will be used for direct payment for services and goods moving forward now that it doesn't exactly need to flow through a crypto exchange? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we are seeing this happening with cybercrime groups who are able to carry out a lot of their cryptocurrency kind of illicit activities on the blockchain. So rather than needing to convert to fiat and then purchase a VPN service, they could just purchase the VPN services directly through the provider of the VPN service provider, or they can. So there are more and more of, especially, this is especially true with, true with criminal activity and and I think it's actually uh, where you can carry, you can purchase more of the stages that are would be needed to carry out a ransomware attack on the blockchain. It's great for modeling out the entire business of a ransomware organization and law enforcement, for example. That's really important for law enforcement because they can kind of go after the top dog rather than uh, through kind of this coherent understand this co this complete understanding of how the organization works rather than kind of the the low tier people who uh, and that that is more impactful but it's harder because then there's less off ramps for for the funds but at the end of the day i think a lot of the criminals are interested in that payday that comes from the the exchange fiat off ramp so mm. i don't i don't know if that's going to change but we are especially with cybercrime businesses seeing more and more of this whole business carried out on the blockchain as that we haven't i don't think we've released this stat yet but the amount of merchant service uh, e-commerce activity using cryptocurrency is growing really fast as well i think it almost doubled from 2020 to 2021 and so it's not huge growth like what we're seeing with DeFi, and it's not a huge amount of activity but it's still it's still something that's you know steadily charging forward and it's healthily growing so uh, I think that that will probably continue as well, especially as, especially in in other countries, uh, the where there might maybe El Salvador, where there's the 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 official cryptocurrency is now Bit, the official um, currency is now Bitcoin, and other countries like Nigeria, where we see a really lot strong amount of cryptocurrency usage already, and with merchants who just accept cryptocurrency directly on their phones uh, through like a downloaded wallet. Uh, mm. I think that that will grow in certain countries. Maybe I don't, I don't quite know what its future is in like the U S for example, but we've seen the demand in, in, um, in some of these other countries, maybe low and middle income countries where there's a lot of crypto adoption to, um, to, you know, you hear banking unbanked, you hear people left out of the financial market. And I think crypto is not as much as we would like to see, but is serving those populations increasing in, with increased frequency. That brings us brilliant over to sort of the next theme. And now one of the key aspects of cryptocurrency is that it's decentralized and it, in, it increases transparency on funds. Um, the EU is now wo uh, voting uh, about KYC on cryptocurrencies and especially on non-con, uh, sorry, non-custodial wallets. First off, what is a non-custodial wallet as opposed to a custodial wallet? A non-custodial wallet, I believe, you what what you're referring to is just a 
individual's wallet. So but yeah. why do we call it non-custodial? Because you're not having someone else custody your funds. You're holding them uh, yourself. So yeah, non- non-custodial, unhosted, personal wallets, however you want to call it. Uh, are just your own wallet where you're managing and self-custodying your own your own cryptocurrency. And this is something that regulators are extremely interested in, uh, data around how, what are these personal wallet networks looking like? How much crime is going through them? How do we regulate them? What even are they? And I think regulators are really trying to wrap their head around around this issue right now. It's a it's a complicated issue. We've heard some extreme extreme regulatory responses to them, and some uh, some that are the opposite. So yeah, I don't I don't quite know where that's going to land. I think that regulators are in kind of an information gathering mindset right now. So so it feels like it's almost like what non custodial wallets is the cash in your pocket. Meanwhile, custodial wallet is the bank. Uh, bank card or the credit card that you have in your pocket where yeah yeah, yeah where the bank could have uh, access to the data and understand where is the funds actually heading from and to and so forth um, yeah exactly but what are the problems that we see what are the problems that more strict kyc imposed on non-custodial wallets will provide what are the problems of too strict regulations on unhosted wallets yeah well there's the first thing you want to do is you want to have a policy or regulations that are needed and helpful and you don't want to kind of overburden any industry with with regulations that wouldn't be helpful that would just kind of stifle growth and i think if you over again caveating this with i'm not a regulatory person um so i i'm more on the data side and I can speak to what we know about um about about the data around unhosted wallets but but I think that that's the concern is that over regulating a, a new industry especially one that's so global and we're seeing countries all over the world kind of leaning into cryptocurrency and I think that there you 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 might run the risk of of stifling development or innovation in some way and so if you if you restrict this activity too heavily, it might have the effect of of just overburdening the the industry altogether. And then on the on the flip side, it's it's this fear of what is really happening with these personal with these unhosted wallets, with these personal wallets. How are people really using them? Are they all just used by criminals who are um, facilitating Russian oligarch money to be sent abroad? Um, you know, it's kind of the more fear-based approach towards cryptocurrency. I don't know which one is every every regulator I think comes from a different kind of background and kind of approach towards these topics. And so what we do is we provide data to help regulators understand this problem. And I think that we have set we've we've put out these kind of percentages of how much illicit activity is happening. What we found in just a one-off um, take on trying to answer this problem, and we haven't published anything official yet, but something like around 2% of personal wallets are coming from illicit activities, and of course there's a lot of variation within that. So what we can do is provide regulators with the data to answer these questions, so it's not based on anecdotes or things that they've read that are stories about another story. Rather, this is the the data that you would have to be able to answer this, and we're extremely forthcoming with putting out our data, talking about the caveats, I think because our leaders have recognized 
that the industry just they just they just need data at this point that's that's what they need that's what the industry needs to grow so then uh, the eu votes yesterday about uh, regulating these uh, non-hosted wallets i don't know if chainalysis has any particular stance on this or um i'm not actually familiar with that so uh chainalysis probably does but i'm not i'm not aware All right, so let's just move into like some final questions and uh, more on practical take on crypto trends. So what are the top trends in crypto crime these days and what's next? DeFi, the criminals leaning into DeFi to launder and um, to launder money and to attack DeFi platforms. Scamming is always going to be the biggest source of illicit activity. So what are your top three tips for financial companies wanting to stay compliant and are just sort of starting setting up their AML and compliance processes for to support crypto? I would say hire a good team. <laughs> that's the most, that's the mo- honestly, that's the most important thing um, is getting getting good talent that knows the industry and has kind of an eagerness to to dive down every rabbit hole uh, get good compliance software like chain <laughs> chain analysis i hate to say it like it's, i know it sounds salesy but it's it's one of the most important things you can do is get good software to help you scale your compliance programs i think those are the two i'll, I'll two, good, two. <laughs> two good tips yeah. and then also uh, what's your best argument for crypto being safer than traditional fiat for aml Oh, 100% it's traceability, that it's that it's all traceable. I mean, we've talked about that a yeah. lot in this podcast. It's not that surprising. <laughs> but then on the flip side, what's your best argument against crypto then for AML purposes or, or in the AML contexts? I think that so against it being a good thing for AML, right? Yeah, I was just like, yeah. The, on the flip side, tra- tra- traceability and transparency is like the best argument for it being safer it than fiat. It, but then on the flip side, what? Yeah, the the critics. What do they say? I think that it just makes it so quick to do payments across borders and internationally that like that all of a sudden, all of a sudden you have this way of receiving payments from someone you that you attack in a country all the way across the world. So the even though it's more traceable. Criminals are a pre- understand that this is a good way to to get money from people who whose um, computers you lock up because you get it instantaneously. You might be in a jurisdiction where people don't care if you did that, and it just it just I mean it's the same reason why we saw Ukraine accepting such. Mm so much charities um, using cryptocurrency because it's just uh, let's get that money instantly into into mm. Ukraine. So this was part one of the episode with Kimberly. Stay tuned for part two, which will release on Thursday and we'll talk even more about these topics. Yeah.